Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. How I describe you is like this like incredibly intelligent, passionate, curious very skilled, motivated um, journalist who speaks five languages, but who forgets her keys and like loses her bank card and is like the most scatterbrained person ever. I'm not sure absent-minded is the right uh, word, but I think that you can be a little bit um, flustery. Flustered, you can be like, <laughs> yeah, like there's sometimes a little bit of a little hurricane happening around you. You had your bike stolen like several times, or like you would, and that was because you would park it and lock it, and then you'd forget about it for maybe like days or weeks, and then you came back and it was gone. And I think that happened more than once. There was a lot of chaos <laughs> that was uh, very, uh, very alley. Very alley. That was Aviva in Tel Aviv, Rodrigo in Vancouver, and Danielle in Calgary, all describing their friend, Allie James. I have only recently met Allie, but I can attest to all of these qualities. The woman has got a resume a mile long. She's a producer at Frontburner, the CBC Daily News podcast. She's worked in radio and video all around the world, picking up those Five languages in the process. English, French, Mandarin, Italian, and Spanish. She's also helped launch and run two digital news outlets in two different languages. To put it simply, she is no slacker. But all the other stuff about Allie is also true. I say this in the most gentle way possible, but she is all over the place. The stolen bikes and the lost keys, these are not sometimes things. They are all the time things. Speaking of time, Allie has her own unique interpretation of it. It's kind of like she exists on a schedule that was drawn by a dropped Etch-A-Sketch. And that's just the tip of the Allie iceberg. I'm Macy Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. Allie is 36 now, and this thing, this chaos has been upending her life for about as long as she's been living it. So, this past year, she made the decision to finally figure it out. Is this just how she is? Or is there something going on with her? And if there is, is there anything she can do about it? Allie will take it from here. I've always been a really bad sleeper. It's not that I can't fall asleep initially. It's that I wake up at three in the morning plagued with thoughts about all kinds of things I never got done. 
emails from years ago that I never replied to, or favors I promised to do for friends and then kept forgetting to follow through on, or projects I started and procrastinated on and never finished. The one that gnaws at me in the middle of the night more than any other is the book for Juan Carlos. Hoy es 12 de diciembre aquí en Beijing. I met Juan Carlos and his wife Gabby about a decade ago when I worked at a radio station in Beijing. People there were from all over the world. Like there were 60 foreign language services, including Esperanto. Seriously. And a bunch of us formed this really close-knit group of friends. I don't think anyone in that group was more adored than Juan Carlos. Hello. How are you? It's hard to describe his smile without sounding cheesy, but honestly, it really was. Like, there was this light inside of him just beaming out of his face. And he did smile a lot. Like the time you got a whole bar full of people, who mostly did not speak Spanish, to sing along to the Mexican folk song, El Cielito Lindo. But he could be serious, too. I so clearly remember the first time I met him. It was at a restaurant with a bunch of other colleagues. Just the way he asked me questions and the way he listened so intently to the answers, I mean, it was like it was the most interesting thing he'd ever heard. And the thing is, he was like that with everyone. Juan Carlos made all of us feel special and respected and included. In 2016, a couple years after I left Beijing, I went to visit him and Gabby in Mexico City when I was there for work. They had just had a baby, Mateo, and he was only four weeks old. Juan Carlos was coughing a lot. He thought it was asthma, maybe from years of living in two huge, polluted cities. A month later, he was dead. It had been cancer. Because I had just been in Mexico and seen them, and because I speak Spanish, I offered to help organize some things. First, a flower delivery to the funeral, and a crowdfund for Gabby, who was now a widow with a tiny baby. Then, I had the idea to organize a book of letters from all the Beijing friends, for Gabby and for Juan Carlos's family. I made a Google Doc and told everyone in this 20-person group chat to write in it, and I offered to translate all of their messages. This was just before I moved to Miami to start a new job, and I was going through all of my visa processes and everything at the time, and so I figured, okay, I'll write my letter and then translate everyone else's once I get to Miami. When I got there, I was working late every night, and with this new job, I figured, okay, once I settle into this new gig, then I'll do it. And then I was working on this thesis project for my master's degree, and then we were moving to Toronto, and I was really busy with that. And the longer I put it off, the harder it became to start. Now, it's been more than four years, and I still haven't done these translations, or even figured out what I want to write myself. I did open the document once last year, and I started translating the first letter. But I found the translation so difficult, 
And it was so overwhelming to even think about scrolling down to look at all these other letters that I just stopped after the first page. I honestly don't know why. I can't just push myself to get this done and like do what I said I was going to do. I mean, yeah, part of my problem is the emotional weight of the grief. I know that. But procrastinating like this, even on small projects, this is another one of these very alley things. It's part of a whole constellation of chaotic tendencies that I've always just referred to as my problems. These things that I know are easy enough for most people, but that just aren't for me. Stuff like being tidy, staying organized, not losing stuff, finishing what I started. And I'm almost always running late. Like seriously, as far back as I can remember, time management has been a problem. Just ask my parents. I remember going on walks with you when you were about two years old. And it would take forever to walk around a block. You would stop, you know, and look at the lines in the sidewalk and stop. We had to pick up, pick up pine cones, every pine cone. Every pine cone. I don't actually remember a time in my life when people weren't asking me to hurry up. Well, like getting dressed, what was that for like? instance. <laughs> what was that like? That was a nightmare. <laughs> it took forever to get out of the house. And I remember that like all through your childhood. It took you forever to it would get have been, out of the house. We'd have made Allie's life easier if we just had one pair of socks <laughs> and one pair of underpants. So she wouldn't have had to spend all that time deciding what to, which one to put on. But then I would have lost them. And then what would I have done if I only had one? Well, we could have had a secret reserve or something that we kept out (laughs) one at a time. In elementary, I was a favorite of most teachers. I was very well behaved. I learned to read faster than most of my classmates. Teachers loved me. But I tended to daydream. By around grade four, I have memories of the teacher calling on me. And I wouldn't know how to answer because... I would have no idea what they'd been talking about. And I just remember all the other kids laughing at me. Around that time, I started faking sick a lot, usually because I'd suddenly realized that I'd forgotten my science homework or my math textbook. And I would rather go to the nurse's office than have to admit this to my teacher for the hundredth time. These kinds of things got worse as I got older, especially grade eight. My mom, who is very organized, keeps a folder in the basement with my name on it. Here we go. Mm, okay. Inside it are all kinds of mementos and records from my childhood, childhood including notes home from my teachers. Oh, this is in English grade 8. Allie must serve a one-hour detention this Friday, November 21st, due to not returning a memo sent home on November 1st. I've waited patiently for her to return this, but she has not come through. This is Mrs. Hollins had the math teacher. Allie was asked to hand in test corrections on Monday for bonus marks. She failed to do so, and when asked to come in after school on Monday, did not come. (laughs) Hopeless. There were a lot of these notes. Oh, here. Miss Wiegand, science. 
unfortunately, at this time, Ellie's not passing science. This is a rather ridiculous situation <laughs> since I feel she's such a bright young woman. She's been given an abundance of opportunities to make amends with missing assignments and has done so in 50% of cases. All right. Wow. What did, what did you think at, the, at that time? I mean, it was, it was hard to know, because you were my oldest child, whether this was just a, a stage of growth for a young person, but it was definitely getting to be a problem, and I knew that. But I also knew that you were exceedingly bright, and I couldn't figure out what the problem was, really. How did you feel? Like, I mean, I just feel like that must have been exasperating. Well, it was, but I didn't really know it any other way. I just thought, okay, you you obviously have no health problems. You're you're totally fine. So I didn't think ever of asking a doctor, is this normal? Never, never once did I think of it. Mm-hmm. And the teachers never said, oh, your child needs to be seen by a doctor. There's a problem here. Never once. I graduated high school with honors. But as I got out into the world as a young adult, my weird quirks were becoming more and more of a problem. Here's how one of my best friends, Aviva Zimmerman, remembers a backpacking trip in Madrid when we were 19, where, classically, I happened to be on crutches for a sprained ankle. First of all, I remember your your hostel, like we, we were staying in a group room and I remember your room was like a mess and you had lost something and we were looking for it. Maybe it was your passport <laughs> or something, but I remember like trying to help you find it in a total mess. And I remember just being like, oh my God, like, whoa, like this is a problem. Like, and then I also remember saying goodbye to you. Like we had stopped a taxi and you were going to get into the taxi and go. And like there you were and your luggage was falling out everywhere and you were on crutches and like the taxi started, uh, you had created a traffic jam. Like, and I remember like it was maybe a traffic circle or something. And there was like what? a bus behind you and it was just chaos. Chaos. This word has stalked me around my whole life. Like the chaos. I've lost my wallet and my passport more times than I could count. I didn't pay my taxes for nine years just because I couldn't bear to start the paperwork. I've been blacklisted by a cell phone company because I kept forgetting to pay my bill. And I still have what I'd call a difficult relationship with the whole concept of time. (laughs) The funniest thing you would do is you would be having a party. This is my good friend Joanna Wong. We used to live together in Beijing. And you would invite like 40, 50 people over at no, least. No, it was never that many people. No, seriously, you would. And then you would come home after the party had already started with all the groceries to make the food and the dinner for the party. And like me and our other roommates would already be entertaining your guests. <laughs> and, and it wouldn't even like sink into you that you had maybe like not time things quite right and then you would start cooking and then like I don't know an hour over a couple hours later you know you would get the food out and we're like okay wow <laughs> the time management stuff and the disorganization and the general absent-mindedness these have all caused me problems at work I've been fired from three different jobs 
at other jobs, I've done really well. I mean, lots of people would never even know that I'm struggling with any of this. And I work really hard to keep it that way. But sometimes, no matter what I do, the mask slips and the chaos comes out. My first radio job was about a decade ago, at that station in Beijing, where I met Gabby and Juan Carlos. I remember watching my colleagues finish work at like 5 or 6 p.m. and just not understanding how they pulled it off. They didn't seem to agonize over their work being perfect every time. They somehow just got it done and made it home for dinner. I, on the other hand, would be there working and reworking the most minute details of my radio pieces until midnight. I'd often have to sleep at my friend Danielle Nerman's house near the radio station. You had like all sorts of chaos in your life. Um, being stuck at work so late trying to finish something. I was like, what is wrong with this girl? Like, why has she not done this project yet? Danielle, who also happens to work at CBC, was really my mentor at that first radio job. And it was hard for her watching me struggle like this. I felt really bad for you. Um... Like, I worried about you because I was like, why is this taking you so long? You were like in this spider web. Um, you were tangled in all of this stuff and you couldn't get out. And I couldn't quite understand why. I didn't know really how to help you because you would just go back into your work and you would get more jumbled up and more stressed out. And yeah, it just caused you a lot of like anxiety. Um, and I don't know how you coped with all that for so long. I don't know if I was coping. I was just surviving. And that anxiety was not helped when, a couple years later, I became a producer at a documentary production company. It's the kind of detail-oriented, multitasking job that's perfect for an efficient, type-A person who loves schedules and logistics and thinking three steps ahead, AKA, not me. Here's how Joanna Wong remembers it. You'd come home every day from work very stressed and depressed that you had failed at different aspects of your job as a film producer. You'd forgotten something, that you had taken the crew to the wrong place, that you showed up late. There was just like kind of a daily list of disasters that we would, you know, giggle about together, have a beer, try to get over. Um, but they just kept stacking up and happening day after day. You talked a lot about wanting to change and not knowing how. Uh, it was like a regular topic of conversation between us and a regular thing you came back to. You said, I do not know why I'm this way, but I really want to do better. I want to change. Um, and just not knowing where to start. So about a year ago, I finally did something I had been putting off for years. I started seeing a therapist. The forgetfulness and the chaos and that sense of chronic anxiety were not getting better with time. And by my early 30s, I was also dealing with some pretty intense depression. And I knew that what I really needed was to talk to someone. It's about individualizing whatever program, whatever intervention, according to what your particular strengths or weaknesses are. It, it, there are plenty of reasons why I chose Dr. Alana Tappan. But one is that she listed on her website something that I've been wanting to talk to a psychologist about 
for years. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD. I've suspected for a few years mm-hmm. that I might have ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I like I read an article a few years ago about women with ADHD and it sounded a lot like me. Like it was like absent minded, forgetful, uh, getting distracted, you know, losing your keys, mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, being messy and disorganized and not being able to do anything about it and all of that. Um, I feel like ADHD could be the answer to a lot of my questions. But I also have my doubts. Firstly, because I already asked my family doctor about this four years ago after I first read that article. And she tried me on a few meds, but they didn't make me less forgetful, and they definitely didn't help me procrastinate less. So, she said, I must not have ADHD. And I have filled out one of those diagnostic questionnaires before. And, you know, some of it fit, but other things totally didn't. Like being disruptive or so hyperactive that you feel like you're driven by a motor. I mean, that's just not me at all. And, you know, I also wonder, am I just looking for excuses here? I mean, what's the difference between being a little scatterbrained and having a disorder, you know? So something I wanted to talk to you about. Mm-hmm. Some of the things that I'm hearing that make me suspicious is that the symptoms that you're describing happen across um, different contexts. So it's happening at home. It's happening at work. It's pretty consistent. And it's been happening since you were a child. Mm-hmm. So I would actually revisit the ADHD diagnosis. I would... I would recommend getting an an evaluation. And then Alana says something that kind of makes it all click. You know, one of the reasons why this feels really familiar to me and why um, a lot of what you're saying seems to really resonate is because I also have ADHD Mm. um, as a woman. Um, And that's a diagnosis I just found out recently. And there's a lot that I've in updating my own knowledge that I've had to learn about what, how it shows up in women. That's very different than what we've been previously told. Mm. Um, what's that like to hear? Uh, I mean, it's, it's a relief, I guess. It also makes sense because you lost yeah. your keys. You, you were late picking me up from the lobby because you lost your keys, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I do all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. My whole family can tell you, right? Like almost it's almost like a choir. Did you do you have your keys? Same. Do you have your phone? Yeah. <laughs> I walk out of this first appointment just feeling less alone. I mean, it makes me think that I might be onto something here. And honestly, like I really hope it is ADHD because if there's an actual diagnosable reason that I do the things I do, Maybe I can find a treatment that will help me stop doing them, which might mean I could figure out how to finish some of these projects that keep me up at night, like that book for Juan Carlos. AC here. Coming up, With Alana's suggestion that ADHD may be at the root of her chaos, Allie gets digging.
From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I make an appointment to get assessed at a clinic that specializes in ADHD, but they won't be able to see me for about four months. So while I'm waiting, I dive deep into ADHD research and look for clues. Here's what I find out. ADHD has a lot to do with these two neurotransmitters, norepinephrine and, most importantly, dopamine. These neurotransmitters travel to the frontal lobe of the brain, where they help your brain perform what are known as executive functions. Things like focus and planning and time management and remembering where your keys are. We're talking about the ability to organize one's life to get things done that need to get done, that are useful to the person, that helps the person reach their goals. This is Steve Ferrone. He's a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at SUNY Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. And for decades, he's been studying ADHD and how it works in the brain. Those are executive functions, but I'd like people to think about it as the ability to stay organized in a goal-directed way. The problem for people with ADHD is that, for a variety of possible reasons, the dopamine and norepinephrine don't always reach their destination in the frontal lobe. So what people with ADHD need in order to produce enough of those chemicals is some kind of high stimulation situation. For example, an urgent deadline. If something is due in an hour, boom, the dopamine starts flowing and suddenly they can get the thing done. Or if something is really interesting. If an ADHDer is really into a video game or has a sudden urge to Google every possible fact about giraffes or rosacea or the history of Guam, they could focus so intently that they might lose all track of time for hours. People with ADHD can be they're very sensitive to rewards that are, we call them proximal or very close by. So if I'm rewarded immediately, like in a video game, I press a few buttons and I get an instantaneous feedback. A person with ADHD responds very well to that. But when you tell a person with ADHD, if you study and do well in your tests, you'll be able to go to college and live a better life. That's an incredibly long-distance reward that they have to be sensitive to. And people, It's very hard for people with ADHD to bridge long periods of time. Oh. My. God. This makes so much sense. Like, this could explain why I can learn to speak Mandarin, but I can't fill out my time cards at work. For me, learning a language is like playing a video game. Like it's this never-ending challenge where you're constantly unlocking these cool new levels. And you practice it by speaking to interesting people. I mean, it's like a dopamine factory. Time cards, on the other hand, are boring. Zero dopamine there. And it could also explain why I haven't translated the Juan Carlos letters. It's not that they're not important to me. They're very important. It's just that the reward feels far off, and no one's given me a hard, urgent deadline. So a second thing I learn is that if I do have ADHD, it's not my fault. 
the science is pretty clear that ADHD is not caused by playing too much on your phone or eating too much sugar. It's about your brain wiring. And a lot of that is genetic. Simply that ADHD runs in families. They've computed that the heritability of ADHD is about 75%. It's not like there's one ADHD gene that you either get or you don't. Steve says it's a whole bunch of teeny tiny differences, possibly tens of thousands of them, that can add up together to having this condition. Also, Steve wants to make it very clear that ADHD is not unique to North America. It is a worldwide condition. It's not as... Some people like to argue in American invention, not at all. It's everywhere um, that it's been looked for. I've spent so much time berating myself for these things I do, hoping that if I remember how badly I feel about it this time, maybe I won't do it next time. But there always is a next time. And now I'm thinking, I mean, if it turns out that this is how my brain is wired, Maybe all that browbeating was pointless the whole time. And it would also make a ton of sense because my dad is a lot like me. Yeah, he'll often forget stuff still, all the time, all the time. Take it from my mom. I remember going through your dad's report cards once with him. We've got a file upstairs for him. And there's one from his teacher and he was probably sixth or eighth grade or something. The boy is bone idle. (laughs) Uh, Not living up to his potential, you know, all that stuff. And I thought, oh, that old fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. Here's another thing you need to know. There are three main presentations of ADHD. Hyperactive, inattentive, or a combination of both. The hyperactive presentation is probably what you imagine when you think about ADHD. Kids climbing on furniture and misbehaving and flying into a rage. Inattentive looks like daydreaming and absent-mindedness and disorganization. Steve told me the hyperactive presentation is a lot more common in kids, particularly males. And the inattentive presentation, it's a lot more common in girls and women. He said researchers still haven't looked at how ADHD presents in trans and non-binary people. But I asked him if he thought that this inattentive, hyperactive gender divide could have something to do with the ways girls and people assigned female at birth are more socially conditioned to fit in and not cause trouble. It is a great question. I I don't know if there's been any research on that point. I, I would think it plays an important role. At any rate, what's crucial to know here is that until the 90s, Experts didn't realize that ADHD without hyperactivity even existed. Up until then, we thought it was about hyperactive, troublemaking little boys. This is Sari Solden. She's a psychotherapist who has ADHD herself. And she says that back in 1997, when my grade 8 teachers were sending all those notes home, even if my mom had taken me to see a specialist, it is very unlikely that anyone would have diagnosed me with ADHD. Just two years before that, Siri had published her groundbreaking book, Women with Attention Deficit Disorder. And at the time, even that idea was controversial. And it was just a really big hit at the time because I was naive. I didn't realize that it was like a big deal, like breaking taboos almost to say women had it too and Hmm. women were different and women were started to, it was a feminist kind of movement almost like 
there was pushback about it. And women had to really push their way through and go to their doctors. It was driven by the women themselves saying, I have this, I'm like this, we're different. And, and then people started helping them more and listening to them. But it wasn't easy. It wasn't accepted really at first. Recognizing what the inattentive presentation of ADHD looked like helped Siri see the symptoms in herself and in some of the clients that she was counseling at the time. And it was very clear to me just from the get-go that women had the same difficulties as men, but when they had those difficulties, they had tremendous amounts of shame and embarrassment and feelings of failure about the same difficulties. Often men, at that time at least, they had more people helping them. Or even when they had the problems, they weren't taking it as a big deal. You know, like the absent-minded professor, they still were seen as having strengths, but just have this cute little thing. But women, you know, they really were seen as something flawed about them. And they also internalized that, like, I should be able to do these things. Whoa. Yes, that's so me. And it might even partially explain why my dad and I have always had such different attitudes about our absent-mindedness. When I, like my own forgetfulness, I've always, uh, and I've had it all my life, I just shrugged it off. Yeah, that's always something that has, like, amazed me, is that it has never bothered you, or, like, it really... I mean, I'm rueful sometimes when I forget stuff, but it doesn't, it doesn't actually bother me. I just go, oh, well. So... And I know that was one of the things that, um, especially in your teens, it started to consume you when you forget something and you'd feel so terrible about it. And I would try to say, well, look, it's, you know, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. But that was never the case for you. A big part of this is also that my dad is the most relentlessly optimistic person that I know. But gender expectations have got to play a role here, too. And in the past few years, more and more women and people assigned female at birth have been getting the diagnoses they never got as kids. But it's not just gender that's keeping people from being diagnosed. You're also more likely to get diagnosed if you're white. Even though studies show rates of ADHD are the same across racial and ethnic groups and all around the world. A 2013 study of more than 17,000 children in the U.S. found that Latino kids were 50% less likely to be diagnosed with ADHD than white kids. And black kids were 69% less likely. And the woman, another black woman who has told me anyway that they have ADHD. I'm still in the very beginning stages of understanding what the hell that means. <laughs> I have some suspicions about what that means, but... There is a normalized neglect of Black women in healthcare in general. And then there's definitely a normalized neglect of Black women's mental health. For many Black women with ADHD, like my therapist, Alana Tappan, both race and gender mean they haven't seen themselves reflected in how this condition is talked about. So the trend of not seeing ADHD in white women would be much worse in, in Black women. And so I've been slow to incorporate it into my identity. It's almost like, where does this fit? Like, how does this fit with my identity, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and one of the ways that the neglect comes across is an expectation that they take care of the needs of other people mm -hmm. and not necessarily pay attention to their own needs because it's just like this, this idea of the strong black female but like not just strong but like superhuman mm -hmm. 
So I think that also plays a role in it as well. When I finally get officially assessed, it's a three-hour process with three different specialists. I tell them my whole life story, and they ask me questions to rule out other conditions that might look like ADHD, like autism, or obsessive-compulsive disorder, or bipolar disorder, or the chaos that can come into your life from childhood trauma. I pass with flying colors. I definitely have ADHD. I just have to stop and tell you what an enormous relief this is. It's like if you were a paleontologist who was trying to assemble the skeleton of a newly discovered species of dinosaur, but you couldn't figure out how all the bones fit together. Like, the shape of the skeleton just wasn't lining up. And then you discover that there was this one crucial bone that you were missing the entire time. And suddenly, all the pieces fit together perfectly. And it turns out, there may be a lot to be grateful for about having this kind of brain. Like, for example, my very ADHD tendency to go down two-hour Wikipedia rabbit holes where I lose all sense of time, I mean, that's actually a pretty good research skill for a journalist to have. There are actually lots of positives. Here's how Sari puts it. Because you have a little looser connection and your the difficulty with compartmentalization can also lead to more fluidity and connection between ideas and creativity and high STEM stuff, if it's controlled, can be channeled into taking risks and adventure and being excited and having fun. And you just have to learn to channel it. So if you don't channel it or you don't understand it or you don't help it, it can be pretty chaotic. But if you do, then you can really direct it in a way to find a good fit for yourself. Okay. So Understanding why I'm like this is amazing, but I'm also hoping that the diagnosis can help me figure out how to be a little less like this. Maybe with the right meds and the right strategies, I can learn to be the kind of person who just gets stuff done. The kind of person who could finish that book for Juan Carlos. I start on meds, different from the ones I tried a few years ago. This is a newer kind of long-acting, slow-release stimulant called Vyvanse. Okay, this is the first day on Vyvanse. I just got the prescription last night. I've got high hopes that this is going to be the one. Studies have shown that stimulants help control symptoms for about 80% of people with ADHD, which is way more effective than most psychiatric medications. I'm nervous about side effects, but... I'm more nervous about, like, what if they don't work. And people online talk about meds changing their lives. Like, the heavens open and suddenly their work is magically getting done and they stop tripping on things and they transform into Martha Stewart's in the home. Okay. The meds do make me feel really positive, like way more than any antidepressant ever has. But in terms of being more productive or less forgetful or less of a procrastinator, eh, 
less so. Super absent-minded. Um, it's not like I'm totally giving up hope, but I'm that the the excitement I felt at the beginning and like the feelings that I I thought it was going to work, those feelings are really waning. So I decided to try an ADHD coach. This is someone who helps you learn ADHD-friendly strategies to make your life more productive and organized. But after two sessions, I give up. I just find her suggestions overwhelming, and I have this really strong sense that this is going to be yet another thing that I fail at. So yeah, I'm still finishing work late, I'm still leaving the kitchen messy, and I still haven't translated the book for Juan Carlos. I decide I need some advice from my peers about how to be, you know, less ADHD-ish. So I set up a Zoom call with three people from this Facebook group I'm in called Women with ADD ADHD. <laughs> it is for me. We need a flag. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm yeah, all about yeah. All their stories feel very familiar to me. I can. Hi, I'm Francine. So I love this woman with ADHD, ADD group I'm in it all the time um because like you guys are my people that I can talk with when I leave my car running (laughs) for for hours (laughs) and I'm just like how did this happen um I've done that so I did well in school I had a lot of really good coping mechanisms um which I didn't really realize were coping mechanisms and then when I had kids it was a little harder. And then when I became a single mom, I was just really, really feeling a lot of shame because I couldn't keep the house together. I couldn't keep everything together. And that had always been part of my identity that I wanted to be together. And um, I was actually looking up chronic disorganization. And then they mentioned that women with ADHD often do. And I found like a link like to an assessment. And I'm like, me, 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 me. (laughs) I was like, this is mind blowing. Like, this is really exciting. So hi, my name is Holly. Um, I live in Vancouver, Canada. I'm originally from Los Angeles, California, and I train dogs. I'm one of those really lucky girls where my my mom was diagnosed when she was young and uh, she's a smart cookie and she got me and my sister tested and lo and behold, we both have it. So I looked out, I got uh, diagnosed when I was, gosh, I was really young, five, six, seven, somewhere in there, like right along where usually most boys start to get diagnosed. How how do you think it might've helped you to, to know that so early and to have that kind of recognition? I think honestly, the biggest difference would have been, uh, something that I hear as like a classic trauma story over and over and over again, is that, that sense of like attack on their personal worth because they couldn't fit in because they couldn't do the thing like everybody else could. And you were like, why can everyone else do this thing? And they're all like, it's super easy. Why don't you just get it done, Linda? And you're like, I don't know, I'm trying. Um, I, oh, I, knew, I had the answer from the beginning is just because my brain was different and that didn't affect my self-confidence growing up. That's really cool. That's amazing. Yeah, I got lucky. What about you, Kirsten? Um, yeah, I'm listening to you all and I'm looking at my white hair and I'm thinking, <laughs> oh my God, I'm going to blow their minds open with this. Uh-huh. I was diagnosed at 46 and I'm 52 now. But then I set about like getting some self-esteem because I understood who I was and I understood what was going on. Um, and that was a real beautiful thing for me. 
I would have given my right arm to be diagnosed at the ages that you all are diagnosed. We all click pretty much instantly. There's just this feeling of, like, I get you. Like, I really get you. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Well, I like, you know how they check your purse and stuff sometimes when you go places? <laughs> like, like for example, like a government building, you have to go through a thing. Well, mm-hmm. I've, they've literally been like, are these scissors in here? <laughs> oh, my God. It ha- okay. No, one time it happened to me. I was staying home with my parents. It was at Christmas. And so I was like home with my parents. I went to like a, a concert with some friends. And when I went through the like security check thing, the first one was like, uh, what the, <laughs> it was like my parents' home portable phone was in my deck, so, <laughs> like stuff like that. I totally, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Oh yeah. So. When I reached in to get stuff, like I wouldn't let people see my purse. And that was something in one of the first books I read for a woman with ADHD. And it was like, if you don't want people to see the inside of your purse, you might be one of us. And I'm like, oh no. <laughs> that thing that Francine's talking about about trying to hide what she saw as these horrible problems, that's something we all shared too. I was always waiting for, for like my dark secret to come out. Like, where, like I would try to act normal for as long as possible before it became obvious to people that like the, the thing that was wrong with me, like before they could see it. And I felt like I went through life like that all the time, like especially in jobs and stuff, trying to be like, Seem normal as long as you can until they find out about your <laughs> this stuff. This is totally me. Even though I looked at switching jobs, I got promoted at almost every single one of those jobs. So like people actually wow. didn't find me out. I've never been caught. And I feel like that's one of those coping things that we do with ADHD where you have that that drive for perfectionism because you know on the inside it's like a tornado explosion and you only know how to like hit that 100% or like yeah like at 25% we're like it's one or the other you're like everything in between nope can't do it showing the 25% to someone else it's like meltdown scary (laughs) every boss I've had at some point has sat down with me and been like so I'm just trying to understand what happened today because (laughs) this is so familiar because it's like I should have had something in like everyone else was able to do this thing would be able to do this thing like two hours and it's like eight hours later I mean like you guys are saying like the idea of someone seeing the thing when it's not ready I'm like no because then they're gonna find out like then they're gonna yeah yeah yeah. and like they can't know and so it's like I like hold it to my chest I had hoped they'd have some tips for me. And they do have some. Like when Francine needs to get something boring done, invoices or cleaning, she sets herself a timer and posts about it to the Facebook group for some accountability. Because for some reason, if I post, I'm going to do this, I got to do it. (laughs) But if I tell myself that, it doesn't work. But overall, the sense that I get is, I mean... It's not like the ADHD magically goes away with better meds or better life hacks. You still have to live with this kind of brain forever. Even Holly, who's known about it pretty much her whole life. It's a lifelong journey and it's all about figuring out what coping skills worked for you. And I feel like, honestly, that's what a lot of life is. It's just like, you just find out. You just give it a go and be like, well, okay, didn't work. Or it did. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to do this. Juan Carlos. 
Okay. Okay, I've just opened up my Google Drive, um, and I'm going to the file. It's called <clears throat> Book for Juan Carlos and Gabriela. Today's the day. I'm gonna translate this thing. So there's six pages of letters here. <sighs> okay. It's, it's crazy, like it's hard to even put into words how, how stressful it is for me. Even just looking at the posts and looking at what people wrote and knowing that, I mean, they, I mean, they, want, they thought that these messages were going to get to Gabby, they thought that these messages were going to get to Juan Carlos's family. Um, and here I am, yeah, four and a half years later. I already translated the first letter last year. So I scroll down to the second one. People who wrote in here were from Nepal and Croatia and Malaysia and Brazil. So the English grammar isn't all perfect, but I mean, the meaning is very clear. When I heard that you are not anymore, all of a sudden I felt squeezed and it's like a hurricane and devastated you in a second. And then I realized you're very close to my heart. And then the next paragraph says, Hey Gabby, I know you're reading this. This is indeed a tragic part of your life. And in this situation, I don't have words to say, but I definitely want to say to be strong. And I don't know why a good person always left us early. It's truly unfair. Honestly, it's like, it's really hard for me to read. Hey Gabby, I know you're reading this. Um, yeah, and here I am um, four and a half years later and she hasn't read it. But then, as I keep scrolling down, I find something huh. unbelievable. Wow, you know what's crazy? I, I thought that this was way more messages than it actually is. There's just three of them. I mean, some of them are long. It's six pages. But I thought like 20 people had written in this. There are three messages. Three. The friends from Thailand and Croatia and Brazil that, you know, all these people that I was dreading making this confession to, they never wrote in it. I don't, I don't really know what to think about this. I make the decision to come clean. I call up two of my close friends from the radio station. Franca and Neto, and confess everything to them. And what I learned is that other people couldn't do this either. Yeah, they weren't dealing with ADHD, but they still had to deal with the grief. How much it touches our our lives, how much we admire him. Uh, what I'm going to say, I have to say something beautiful, something profound something you know and then you keep thinking and nothing because each time when I want to do it like I crack so I never did it and I feel horrible like there is no excuse but like I can't finding the right words to describe losing this incredible person it was just 
too overwhelming. They had their own reasons to procrastinate. I asked them what they think I should do with these three messages now. And one of them comes up with an amazing solution. What if we do it for the, for the son? What if we do the, this thing for the kid, not for her? We can make a new book of letters, not addressed to Gabby, but to her son, Matteo. That's a great idea. <laughs> what, what do you guys think? It's I really love the solution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that he can know more about this period in his dad's life and about all these friends from all over the world who loved him. Franca, that's it. That fixes it. Yeah, tell the stories to the kid. That weekend, I sit down and write my own letter to Mateo. I tell him about this joyful, infectious energy his dad had, and the way he lit up whenever he talked about his favorite author, Haruki Murakami, or whenever he danced with Gabby. And how, for all the moments I saw Juan Carlos beaming with happiness, I never saw him happier than on my visit when Mateo was four weeks old. How proud he clearly was to be Mateo's dad. Janes. That doc was produced by Allie. It was edited by Julia Poggle, Veronica Simmons, and me, AC Rowe. It took them another two months, but with the help of her friends, knowing that she has ADHD, Allie finished the book for Mateo. Hola, ¿cómo estás? <laughs> two weeks ago, she gave it to Gabby. Hola, Mateo. Mira, el niño metiche aquí. Hola. Hola. <laughs> Gabby's saying that she started crying before she even opened the book. <laughs> and that when she read it, she cried even more. She says, it was a beautiful surprise. Thank you so much to everyone. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Sherry Okeke, Tanera McLean, and me. Also, this week, we are welcoming back Kent Hoffman to the team. Althea Manassan is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. And our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.